Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each Sunday, you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew titled, Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy. All right, so we start in Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. That's what the Jewish belief and teaching regarding marriage and divorce, or at least divorced, was based on. Now, in, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought among the rabbis regarding what was meant if it says the woman becomes displeasing to him, that's number one, because he finds something indecent about her. Now, notice what already does the verbiage tell you about the rights that women had. It tells you there weren't any rights, okay? So, so the whole thing was that it was about the man in terms of, of his, uh, his rights, and she didn't have any rights. She was considered to be property, and so because of that, that meant that he was the one that got to call that shot. So that's why Jesus is primarily here speaking to men. The Shammai, the, if you look at the notes, the two divergent schools of, of teaching were the Shammai teachings, the school of thought, was that something indecent was restricted to adultery or sexual immorality. So we could say today that that was the very conservative body. They, they limited it to that. They said, no, the only thing that could break that marital vow was adultery or sexual immorality. The Hillel school, they were much more liberal, we would say. They were much more open. They said, no, something indecent means any reason displeasing to the husband. Whoa, now we're getting some comment about that already. All right, so what might that have consisted of? Does anybody have any knowledge of that or any thoughts that they would dare to uh, speak up about? Oh, yeah, yeah, Mike. They were divorcing their wives for the smallest reasons. For the smallest reasons. If, if uh, she somehow lost her looks or she had one leg longer than the other or... <laughs> It was anything. If he did not like the way she looked as she aged, for example, or if she burned the toast, or if, if things weren't happening as snappy and as fast as I wanted to, that was the Hillel school. And so where this really comes into play is in Matthew 19, which is later some of the leaders, some of the, the teachers come to Jesus and they ask a question. In Matthew 19, 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, sometimes when the Pharisees would come to Jesus with the idea of testing him, it was like a trap. All right, we're going to trap you. We're going to get you caught in, in whatever words. And then what we're going to do is we're going to spring the trap and then you're going to look bad to somebody. All right. Here, they're not doing that. What they're doing here is they want to know which school of thought are, do you operate from? 
Are you a conservative that says only it has to be very narrow, or are you more the liberal moderate that says, oh, no, it can be for any reason at all? All right? So we'll come back to that, and we'll see how Jesus answers that. That was adopted by Muhammad for the Quran. <laughs> I don't know that much about the Quran. I'm just up here. The same thing. The yeah. Women are the property of the men. Yeah, and that I think that was kind of a Middle, Middle Eastern thing. I don't know if that was necessarily limited to a certain religion. All right. Now, in the Greek and married, uh, the Greek uh, view of marriage and divorce. So that's part of the context, too, because remember, the Greek uh, thought had been part of when Alexander the Great brought the, Bre the Greeks in and they had uh, overrun the Persians. Well, then eventually the Romans overran the the uh, the, the Greeks. And so you have this all these cultural uh, influences going on in terms of also understanding marriage and divorce. So in the Greek view, Marriage was primarily for having legitimate children. Sexual relationships outside of marriage were common and they were accepted as normal and healthy. Temple prostitution was revered and the funds that they used from temple prostitution would be used to, to raise money uh, for capital building ca campaigns. All right. Here's one you'll love. Wives were expected to remain chaste and secluded while husbands could be as sexually immoral as they wished. So it was not, it wasn't uncommon at all for the, for these Greek men to have mistresses and all kinds of affairs and all kinds of, of sexual things going on. And some of it was quite uh, heinous and yet their wives were expected to remain at home and uh, take care of the, uh, of the fires and the kids and that sort of thing, all right? In Roman thought, prior to the Greek influences, Romans practiced home and marriage fidelity. But what happened was they looked around and they saw how much fun the Greeks were having, <laughs> and they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And so they began to adopt the Greek practices, and so while you could argue that from maybe a military perspective and maybe certainly from a governing perspective, the Romans uh, defeated the Greeks, I would argue that from a cultural perspective and maybe even perhaps from a moral perspective, the Greeks had their way with the Romans. And so, see, all of that is what's going on at the time that, uh, that Jesus comes into, uh, comes into the picture. All right? So, you, with that, okay, yeah, Tom. Vicki was wondering if there was a corresponding uh, mortality, increase in mortality rate among the husbands at the time this was going on. Uh, okay, connect the dots for me. Uh, mortality of husbands and... Foolishness of husbands, is that kind of what you meant? Unexplained death. Yeah. Unexplained. One, one would assume that logic would be there, but, you know, I don't know that we have any uh, specific evidence of that. It certainly would be the case today, right? But, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's go back to uh, Jesus' words where he says, Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. All right, so... What Jesus is saying is engaging in sexual immorality or adultery was breaking the marital vow. Any disagreement with that? No. And when that vow is broken, then the believer has the legitimate right, if he or she so wishes, to divorce their spouse 
they, it was, that was a legitimate right that they would have. However, not divorcing was also an option. Does that make sense? With me so far? All right, next page. Now it gets a little twisted, right? Okay. So he says, anyone that divorces his wife except for sexual immorality now makes her a victim of adultery. Now the question is, how could you be a victim of adultery if you yourself did not commit adultery? And that's the, that's the, that's the question here, right? What, if, you're not, if your spouse is the one who commits adultery and you're not the one, could you still be a victim of adultery? How would that happen? Yeah, Phil. It would make make the wife uh, have the public perception that she committed adultery. That's correct. And that's what's going on here. So the notes say, if the woman did not commit adultery and her husband divorced her anyway, he would do it because he was coming out of that Hillel uh, school of thought, which said you can divorce your wife for any reason, right? But if he did divorce her for any reason and it wasn't because of sexual immorality, everybody in that community would think to themselves what? That she was in fact guilty of sexual immorality and she was not. So she became a victim of his action to divorce her even though the divorce was not for sexual reasons. Yeah. This is a kind of dumb question, but why did they ever bother to get married? This is an interesting question. Why did they bother to get married? To have legitimate children so that what would happen? You could pass down the property to the kids, and it all had to do with inheritance. See, so what happened was marriage was starting to take on more of a contractual arrangement. We do this so we can have kids so that I can keep the property and the inheritance in the family. And it didn't have much to do with love. And it certainly didn't have anything to do with the idea of the, God's original intent for marriage. That got lost somewhere. Okay? Okay. So now, he's, now he further adds to this. All right. So anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. All right. Now the next question is, she is now single, right? So what does that mean? Can she remarry? And here's where there's been lots of difficulty in Christendom from the time this was said all the way till now in terms of can someone who has been unjustly stigmatized as being guilty of adultery who was not in fact guilty of adultery, is that person forever going to have to remain single? Can that person remarry? And here's where the translation of these words gets difficult. All right, so let's, um, let's uh, pull this apart. If you go to page two, where it says, who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If the same woman then marries another man, he would now be a second victim. How would he be a second victim by marrying her who was divorced for any reason but not for sexual immorality? She is known in the community as what? An adulteress, right? Now he marries her and what happens? He now is, carries the stigma of being someone who married an adulteress. Okay? 
You tracking with me? See, the prohibition is not the idea that, oh, you have to remain single forever because now you're going to be committing adultery because the reason you committed adultery is because you married somebody who was divorced. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the stigma that that person then carries, the victimization goes beyond that person. It moves into the next marriage if, in fact, there is a next marriage. Okay. What's Jesus' point? Let's see if we can find it. Yeah. Jewish marriage and divorce law had reached such a low point that it became an issue of temporal convenience rather than a response to God's love as a way of loving God back and loving your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's what happened was that by this time, uh, the, the whole idea of why God created marriage in the first place had got totally lost. It got wrapped up in all the legal technical stuff of, well, I got to make sure I have some way to pass down my inheritance and my property and my family name to somebody else. Well, as long as I've satisfied that low standard, then I'm free to do what I want. And so you think, well, where, where did the whole original idea of marriage in the first place and all the things that go with marriage that ought to be exclusive to marriage, which includes sexual fidelity, where, where, see, you can see where the, the thought would be, well, as long as we've taken care of this other thing, we can do what we want. And that's what was starting to happen. Okay? Yeah, Brian. Was the certificate of divorce, was that a real thing that the rabbi... Yeah, there was. It was a piece of paper that would say this person, we are no longer married. It would be an official thing. I don't know. Maybe they would have to get it notarized, you know, in triplicate copies and the whole thing. But the idea of it was, was so that there could not be a later claim made to property and to inheritance and those kinds of things. Okay. Because there would have been an obligation to care for that person in some way. And once that writ was, uh, was, was handed, right, then once that handing takes place, then, then the divorce is complete. So it wasn't like people go today, they go to court and all those kinds of things. This was all handled on a very, uh, very local uh, level. Okay, let's go back to then Matthew 19 to finish the story in terms of Jesus's response when the Pharisees came and they said, you know, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? All right. They're wanting to know what his position was. So look at Matthew 19, four to six. He says, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's interesting here with, with respect to Jesus's response to their question. They wanted to know, is there ever a legitimate reason or a justified reason for a believer to divorce their spouse? So they wanted to talk about divorce, and they wanted to talk about, in particular, grounds for divorce. Have you ever heard that conversation uh, happen, where people are wanting to know, I want to know what my rights are. I want to know what the grounds are for divorce. And when that happens, what happens is people get into arguments then about who is the innocent party and who is the guilty party. 
I've heard some pastors and some Christians talk about the idea of a biblical divorce. And I think that's kind of what they're talking about here. I've never used that terminology before because it just makes me kind of like squeamish. I, I don't like the idea of talking about the idea of saying, well, that so-and-so got a biblical divorce. I don't know what that is. Especially when you look at Jesus' words that say, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. Okay, so there's a, some, some uh, uh, confusion there for me in terms of what people are talking about. But notice in Jesus' response, he says, we're not going to talk about divorce. We're not going to talk about grounds. We're not going to talk about uh, what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. What we're going to talk about is what God's original intent for marriage was. That's the answer. So Jesus turns the argument back into talking about marriage. And he says, here's what marriage is. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. The question, of course, is which one? That was a joke. That, did you not get that? That was a joke. I need to say that on the thing. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what is biblical marriage, right? Biblical marriage consists of one man, one woman. Now that flies in the face of culture today and what is legal in the United States of America and probably all the other or many of the other uh, nations in the world. All right. So when you stand for this, as our church body does, when you stand for this, you can expect blowback from the culture and from other people that say, well, you're being way too old fashioned and you don't understand how it is today compared to how it was back then. Okay. But it is what it is. Secondly, oneness in marriage is a gift from God, which is expressed sexually and exclusively within the confines of marriage. The culture again rejects that today. Most of the, the, the part about now, I don't think the culture today likes the idea of married people having sex with people outside of marriage. I still think there's that line there for a lot of people culturally. But what the culture has done is it separated the exclusivity of having sexual relations with, with each other within marriage. And nowadays, it's anything goes. Okay? It, with not, well, what I mean is, is that people today really, truly think nothing of having sex without even the thought of marriage, okay? In some cases, sex is, uh, is, is happening between people who don't even know each other's last names, okay? They know their uh, contact information that they have in their cell phone, but they don't necessarily know their last names, okay? See, that's how removed society has, has gone from God's original intent which was the idea that if we're going to have sex, we keep it within marriage, and that that's an expression of the oneness that the two people have, where now the two people are, are one. Now, what, is that, what do you think that means, two people are one? What does that mean? To me, in some ways, that means that you have the uh, ability to reproduce a child as a couple. Okay. Who, yeah. And again, falls under those confines that God has 
It has, except now people can have kids without having sex with each other because you can do artificial and, and all those kinds of things. So the science and the technology enables people to do those kinds of things and they don't necessarily need the sexual act with each other to do it, all right? And that's where we get a lot people today who are able to do that. A lesbian couple, for example, is able to have a baby born of one of the, of the spouses. They're able to do that because of the gift of science and technology. They're able to do that, okay? So oneness, uh, anybody else have any thoughts about oneness? Yes. Um, I think there's a spiritual and emotional oneness. A spiritual and emotional oneness, yes. And marriage we're supposed to have it. Sure. Sure, absolutely, yeah. So does that mean that if you have oneness with somebody, you agree with them all the time? <laughs> why, why is there so much laughter here? I don't understand why everybody's laughing. Well, all right, does that mean that you see things eye to eye? Maybe say that a little bit differently, say it eye to eye. No, we don't do that. Okay, well, let's see. Does oneness mean that one of you disappears? No, that kind of doesn't mean that. Does that mean that I, like if I have oneness with my wife, that I have to change and become like her? I've been working on that forever, though, let me tell you. All right. Yeah, see, it, oneness is one of these sort of mystery things, isn't it? You're, you're still who you are. You're still, each of you are individuals. We're individual. We're still who we are. We don't lose that individual identity, do we? We still who, who we are. But it, uh, maybe a way to sort of capture that is to think of it this way, that no matter where you go, you're not just taking you with you. No matter where you go, you're taking the other person with you. No matter what you say, you're, ta you're taking the other person with you. No matter how you act, you're taking the other person with you. That, that the oneness is, is a given, but notice it's given by God in marriage. It's not given by God by people that live together and are either preparing for marriage or pretending to be married or practicing to be married. It's given by God within marriage, and that's the difference, okay? So fourthly, oneness, thirdly, oneness is not given when people live together outside of marriage. There's a lot of people today. Low. Tons of people today who believe that the best way to prepare for marriage is to live together. And, you know, it used to be that it wasn't that way, but in a few rare cases. And maybe even in some sense, there might have been some thought in the back of my mind that would at least say, okay, I kind of get that. I kind of get this person has maybe a long history of failed relationships and, and doesn't even know if he or she can coexist within a relationship with somebody else. And I think to myself, okay, maybe I don't, make a, I don't like to make exceptions, but maybe I can see kind of that point. That is not the way it is now. Almost 90% of people that get married are in fact uh, currently living together or have plans to do that. And what's interesting to me, I guess is how many people have already made contractual arrangements with each other, living together without being married, buying homes together, owning property together, in some cases having children together. And I'm thinking, what is left for marriage, you know? I mean, it's, it's just a, it is a stunning, uh, stunning thing for me, which sort of reveals to you, maybe, 
how old school I am, all right? And that may be part of it is that, you know, I'm a child of the 50s, and uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's some of that, but I do take seriously also what's, uh, what's going on here as well, okay? Number four, living together does not prepare people to be married. It prepares them to live together. So this is kind of an interesting little phenomenon here. What would be the difference between living together and being married, do you think? Because they could sort of see there's the same stuff going on, but you're saying commitment. So can you say more about that? If you're living together without marriage, someone can, you can just walk off. You can leave it. You could. Yeah. Would that hurt? Yes. Yes, it would hurt. But there is a difference between walking off and having the hurt and not having to divorce. So it's not easy to divorce, nor should it be, right? It's a bigger, it's a bigger deal. The thing that, and I puzzled over this a lot because I have, when I do premarital counseling for couples, and I do a lot of it, not, not that I'm doing a lot of weddings, but um, for some of the pastors around in the area, I do their premarital for them. And in many of the cases, not all of them, but in many of the cases, people are living together before they get married. And they always want to ask me, well, you know, what's wrong with it? And it seems to make perfect sense to do it. I mean, to some degree, it kind of does make logical sense to do it. It's just it's terrible spiritual sense. That's that's the problem. OK, it, and I've, so I've sort of puzzled to myself, like, what is the difference? What is present in marriage that you don't get in that arrangement that people have to live together before they get married. And the closest thing that I can come to, and this is still a work in progress for me, is, uh, is the pressure of providing and being committed to that one person and nobody else. And that seems to be more present in marriage than it is anything else. There is a greater burden. Now, there's a joy, right? But there is a greater burden of caring for that person, being there for that person, thinking about that person, caring, uh, t taking care of, uh, of uh, tangible needs for that person. And that pressure is a player in the marriage way more than it is in people living together. So I don't know, thoughts about that? Is this a phenomenon that you're seeing? <laughs> what do you say to them? They say, how do I what? How do you approach them? How do I approach or it? How do, you, how do you respond? Yeah. How I respond is I talk about God's intent for marriage, but then I go ahead and do the premarital counseling. Now, some pastors in some churches will not do premarital counseling for people that want to get married who are living together. And that's a pastoral decision that pastors have to make. How can they correct that? You just, you have to, you have to go with it. I, my view is, and here's how I approach this. And you've heard me probably talk about this, these kinds of things before is for me. The deal is, is that premarital is the beginning of my relationship with those folks. So my goal and my intent is for, as long as they're in the area, I want to be a part of helping them grow that marriage. Okay. And if that means that it's starting out in a way that I would say is not compatible with the scriptures. Okay, that's the choice that they're making. These are adults. They're going to do what they're going to do. And the thing is that I don't want is to lose the opportunity 
to be walking with them through their marriage, even though it might start out in a way that I think is problematic. It's problematic, but it is not overcomable. Okay? So now you're, list, now you're hearing Pastor Audie or Jim Audie's point of view. That point of view is not shared by uh, pastors maybe in, in Texas or even in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or other, other parts. But that's because, again, we, we do have the freedom, I believe, and the responsibility to think in terms of what are we going to do with that. Now, the, the problem with that perspective that I have is that I could invariably be sending a wrong message, couldn't I? I could be sending a message that would say, well, there you go, you're condoning it because you're not, you're not doing anything about it, and you're not saying, well, you're going to have to go someplace else to get married. And, and I'm willing to live with that because, again, my goal is long-term. I want to walk with those people through the early stages of their marriage when they really like each other and think everything is wonderful. And then they get to that place where they don't like each other because nothing is wonderful. And then they learn to do that love stuff that we talk about, which is unconditional and agape kind of love. And then that's where now we can talk about what what love really is. Okay, so there you go. There you go. Yes. If, if they're if they're wanting to be married in a church and they're and they're cooperating with premarital counseling, yes. that means they're open to God's word. Yes. And that mean, that's that's a good start. That's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. It's just that what you're left with regarding God's word is the parts of God's word that fly in the face of the very thing I'm doing. Okay, and that's the hard, that's the hard thing. See, that's the hard thing. Yeah, Glenn. Doesn't the question of sin and God's desire not to be present where sin is present, doesn't that kind of preclude the fact that if you're going against God in that respect, it's going to be real hard for you to have a real good relationship with God? Well, I think the issue is, is divorce or living together or however you want to do it, making my own rules as I go, is that forgivable? It's forgivable. Yeah. And so, again, that's the thing we always would go back to. With confession. Well, okay. I don't think, I think that when people live together before they get married, they're pretty public about it. They're pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty there. And the hard thing is, is that it is such a strong cultural message nowadays for people to say, if you say to me that's wrong, I'm giving up on the church and God. And I guess, I guess for me personally, um, I want to do what I can, that if somebody's going to say that, if they're going to do that, I want to walk right with them while they do it. Does that make sense? So see, if, if you're, if you're, if what you're, if the decision that you're making now has, has negative ramifications for you in the future, Who's going to walk with you through the quicksand when you're dealing with that? I am. But the only way I can do it is by starting out with you and walking with you. And together we're going to, we're going to hit. And, and this is what happens is people hit a certain point at which they look back on their previous decision and they say, we wish we hadn't have done it. And they feel terrible about it. And they feel like, oh, God, what were we thinking? Oh, we weren't, you know. And so what are they going to do with that? And I want to be there with them when they do. Okay, so that's, again, you're getting, 
you're getting my heart here, probably not so much my brain, but you can kind of see that's where, but that's why this is hard. See, this is really hard because it's not like it's an easy cut and dry kind of thing. Okay? Yeah, Keith. I will mention that at those cases, statistically, the failure rate is huge, like 80% plus. So for them to make it, they're going to have to have something like that. Yeah, the divorce rate, you know, is 50%, but it gets higher if people live together. Now, a little bit of a a little bit of a qualifier on that, okay? Because what they're doing when they look at that statistic is that they're also looking at people who had previous marriages. So they had previous marriages that ended in divorce, and then they thought, you know what, I, just, I need to live with somebody to find out if, if I'm compatible with that person, or I need to live with that person to find out if I can still marry you know, somebody, that sort of thing, to check it out ahead of time, right? And so there are people that have done that multiple times. And that would then jack up that, that divorce rate higher. So I'm not sure that anybody has pulled it apart to see what is the actual percentage for people who are first time married, you know, first time living together, then get married. And so that's that part, that part I'm not sure. Okay. But I know that divorce rate is high. Part of it is when you think in terms of why, what would be the logic that we would say humanly makes perfect sense as to why a person would want to live together with somebody before they get married. I mean, there is a logic here. There is a, uh, there is a lure here. What would be, what would be that? Yeah, Mary Jo. Uh, I'll stand up and say, I can say something personally. Because uh-huh. my husband and I lived together before we were married. Yeah. We've been married now 35 years. Sure. Uh, I was divorced with a child, mm-hmm. and he had never been married before. Yeah. So you had... These two different worlds coming together. Yes. I'll also say, you know, a lot of people know I'm a pastor's kid. So I knew I had to tell my dad, you know, right. keep it from him for sure. forever. Oh, yeah. And I was worried, really worried what he's going to say. But he was so kind. Mm-hmm. He said, we love him. Mm-hmm. He's a good man. Um, we can see that you have made a commitment. Yes. The wedding is going to be a formality. You've okay. already made this commitment. Yep. yep. And I'll never forget it because I love him so much in that moment. Sure. But, but to answer your question, yeah. that, that is one example. That is one example of why it would make sense to do that. And even as you're telling the story, I didn't look around to see if anybody was going like this, but I'm <laughs> guessing that I know I was. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It does. Yeah, Mike. Logically, financially, I mean, look, look at the rising cost of living in this area. So sure. I think some people might logically think, well, it does make sense. Yes. You know, yeah. Sometimes we assume that this is only talking about people under 30. It's happening more and more among baby boomers that are getting retired and above. And some of it is, you know, the tax laws being what they are. If you get married, then you have, you know, the loss of income that may be a pension or maybe some, you know, something that came from your, uh, from your spouse, a previous spouse kind of thing. So the tax laws work against that. All right. I talked to somebody the other day who had called me up knew that I was a pastor and wanted to know if I would be willing to do a commitment service, but they had no intention of being married. 
Well, you know, that was kind of new. I said, well, I'm not, I don't, have, I don't really know what you're talking about, you know, because I think of commitment as the marriage thing. I don't know what you're talking about. And that basically what they wanted was a, uh, we want to be married in the eyes of God, but not the state. <laughs> so we want to be able to keep all of our benefits. Well, you know, that was just that deal. So I had to kind of explain that, that when it comes to marrying people, I become an agent of the state. So, because I have to sign that, what, that thing, you know, and besides, I'm still uh, 1950s here. I just don't believe in it. I think if you're going to do the commitment, then get married. And I'll walk with you through that and all the insecurities that it brings up. But, but I was not interested in doing that. So, it, you just don't ever know. Okay, you don't ever know. Yeah. Pastor, when you were describing and defining the oneness of marriage, I was thinking how much it mirrors the oneness of God. Yes. That you take the other person with you, yes. whatever you're acting, whatever, whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, it seems to me in marriage that once you take the vows, it's the oneness is a given. Yeah. But there's also a sense of the sanctification thing where now you have to grow in that oneness to make it more of a reality in your relationship. It's kind of a baby oneness when we first start out, you know, and then like you said, I love how you said it, is that we grow into that. But the oneness that you have at marriage at the beginning of marriage is the same oneness that you have at the end of marriage. And you notice when you if you want to. Uh, do a word study sometime on oneness. What you'll be taken to is a lot of verses where Jesus says the father and I are one. The oneness that Jesus had with his father. And so this idea again of no matter where Jesus went, no matter what Jesus did, no matter what Jesus said, okay, he would always say, I'm here to do my father's will. It never was about him personally. And I think to some degree, that's how oneness gets broken is that when I'm thinking only of my own needs, and I have, I'm not, it doesn't even occur to me to think of your needs, and that, and that we're not even thinking of our needs. And that's human nature to do that, but that probably is the biggest contributor to the demise of marriage, is when I stop thinking of you, and I stop thinking of my wife, and I stop thinking in terms of wherever I go, she goes, even if she's at home. See, it's, it's just that, that's the, gift of, uh, that's the gift of marriage. So to get down to beloved life, oh, two more things. Okay, God's intent is for marriage to last your lifetime. Does that make sense? If death occurs, people are free to marry again or not. It's your freedom. It's your, okay, my mom became a widow uh, in 1979. She chose not to remarry. Was that Okay. Sure, of course. That's her choice. There are other people that within a year or two get remarried after a death. It tends to be more men than women. That's kind of an interesting uh, sociological effect. Okay. Do what? Men need somebody to take care of. <laughs> now, now, I knew I shouldn't have gone there. Well, okay, let the door's been open now. What possibly could be the reason that a guy would marry sooner perhaps than his than than the wife would? He doesn't know how to turn on the oven or the <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is there is a certain helplessness that goes along with that. Okay, what kind of what the old saying is 
is that men need women more than women need men. And there's to some, some truth to that. Yeah. And it's not just in that practical stuff of how much soap do you put in the top of the, of the, uh, uh, of the clothes washer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Which one is the dryer? That's a good one. Yeah. Oh gee, I didn't, there was no water in there and I couldn't figure out why. Yeah. Okay. I think it's mostly loneliness. Yes. I think it is. I think, I think women will go out there and handle it. Yes. And I think, I think men have a, have a, uh, would have a more hard time. We have a harder time with that. That's right. Women are more social and have more resources at their disposal to be able to do that where men do tend to isolate and then it becomes uh, very harmful to their health. So uh, one of the studies that I read one time with, re with respect to men is that th some predictors of, of uh, not early necessarily age-wise, but just um, how soon it happens for men to die uh, versus, versus women. And one of them is, is that if a guy retires and then he doesn't find something else to do that is meaningful and purposeful and has some challenge to his life, then very often that's a predictor of whether or not that man would survive that. And the marriage part is the same thing, okay? If a guy uh, loses his spouse, the average is kind of like one to two years, and if he doesn't find somebody else that is that sort of completion person, that help me kind of person, uh, that friend, that companion, whatever you want to say about that, then um, that also is at times a predictor, okay? So uh, the hard thing is that I found for a lot of men is that it's not that they're in a hurry to remarry, but their need for somebody else in their life is, is, is critical, but if they have adult children who have not fully grieved the loss of their mother, that creates a real, that is a very real uh, dilemma in that family. And so again, it's kind of the idea of helping people navigate that and helping people walk through that. And some families handle it beautifully and it's a non-issue. Um, they're just able to, to, to manage it. And there's other families that they get wounded and they get hurt and then accusations fly, you know, you didn't really love her and, you know, all this dumb stuff. And it takes forever then, not forever, but it takes a long time to, uh, to heal that and repair that. So uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a real deal, okay, real deal. Any other thoughts on that? So beloved life principle number 22 is that reasons for divorce vary. It still involves forgivable sin. And what I mean by that is, is that Again, it goes back to that thing of, you know, uh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, God's intent is that we stay married during our lifetime. That's, that's, that's God's intent. Okay, but obviously divorce happens. Sometimes it's legitimate in the sense that somebody really truly has been unfaithful and has, has sort of a serial unfaithfulness, so to speak, well, then it's probably right that, they, that those people have to divorce because they just simply cannot live together. Um, in situations of abuse, physical abuse, um, uh, or abuse of children, that sort of thing, yeah, it's probably best that they divorce. But sin is still involved, and the question is, can that sin be forgiven? Yes, it can. 
Unfortunately, in the history of the church, that has not been handled well because we all might know horror stories of uh, the divorced uh, person, you know, having to stand up in front of the church and confess the whole thing. And it's like, gosh, that's like double abuse on top of whatever it is that's occurred. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I was, when you mentioned that, I was thinking I have a friend of mine that she's become a very strong believer. And she was talking to me one time. She was struggling because she knew that God did not believe in divorce and that it was for sexual immorality. And she was struggling with it. And I said, what's the, what's the matter? Well, her now ex-husband was physically abusing her. Right. Right. And she was asking me about it, and I said, no, you do not have to stay married for that. Right. God also talks about how a husband is supposed to cherish his wife, mm-hmm. treat her, how this. And I said, no, God does not want you to stay in a physically and most emotionally abusive marriage. Right. And she was she was struggling with it because she didn't think that she was supposed to get divorced. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what else he was doing, but he was physically abusing her and one of her children that mm-hmm. was from And so see, that's then where you look at these verses and you think, well, the only legitimate reason somebody could divorce is if somebody has sexual immorality with somebody else. And that's not, that's why Jesus, he, see, he takes it back into the the discussion of marriage. What is marriage? You know, and then we can go to Ephesians five and six and boy, now we can get a full description of what this cherishing, respecting thing is that it characterizes, it characterizes that oneness. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, being willing to let me just sort of uh, lay it all out here for you this morning. We're going to, we're going to stop a little early today. I don't want to get into the next part because of what, the, where that'll take us. And besides that, I got to go to work in the second service today. So uh, uh, I can uh, beat a hasty retreat here. So let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you remind us of how much you love us and that the love that you have for us creates a oneness that we have with you. That oneness through faith and grace and the fact that you love us and the fact that in our baptisms you said uh, that, that we are your beloved. And these are the things that we have to hang on to. These are the things that, that give us such comfort and hope, especially since we live in a world that seems to be all upside down with what it thinks and what it believes is the most important thing. So I would simply pray here, Lord, for all that are married here. I pray that you would continue to strengthen the oneness of the marriage. It gets tested in so many ways. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with each of us as we walk through our lives, through the, through the difficult things with our friends and with the culture and with all the different things that people believe. I, I simply pray that you would strengthen us so that we can be a, a, a credible witness to your love, to the world around us, knowing that sometimes the message that we speak is we're going to get blowback and criticism and perhaps even persecution. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Give us those opportunities and uh, hold us together to each other and to you until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com. 
and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.